Hello, welcome to episode 15 of the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm here with Todd. I'm Jason. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming back. Uh, so this week, we're going to talk about professional bike fitting. Uh, we're going to start with uh, what you might expect if you sign up for a bike fit, what's going to happen when you show up, uh, what are the fitter's goals a little bit, and then we're going to move on to some of the technology that they'll use to you know, do a better job than you can do on your own. Yeah, perfect. And I think... So I guess I'll kind of talk from my experience and to be fair, I don't, I don't even remember how many one day and weekend courses I've taken, uh, to gain the, like sort of the background knowledge around fitting. So we'll do our best to, to squeeze this into a podcast, but know that we're probably just, uh, scraping the surface of all the things that are there and the, um, all the details that someone would go into as they're doing a professional fit. Um, and you know, I think there's, there's probably some obvious things like you're going to show up, you're going to bring your bike shorts and your shoes and your, mm-hmm. your gloves, presumably if you wear gloves and your, your bike. And if you have saddle, you know, extra saddles or extra stems or whatever extra stuff you have, uh, yeah. you're going to show up with all of that. So let's start first with, um, <laughs> let's talk about your credentials a little bit, uh, as a bike fitter. So Todd is, uh, have some background in bike fitting. Yeah. So I have, I have a diverse experience uh, when it comes to bike fitting. So I, I started way back when I was at the bike shop uh, and I, I used a fit kit. So I had that sort of experience first and then you know, I went to school, got my doctorate in physical therapy. And then, like I said, I forget how many different courses I've taken. I've taken them from the medicine of cycling group. I've taken them from track. Um, I've done some online education as well um, when it comes to fitting. So you know, kind of that, that anatomy and biomechanical background that comes in with being a PT, but then also, you know, prior experience to think about, um, from bike fitting, just as being a bike shop employee. And then the more advanced courses that I've taken along the way. Um, in terms of my experience, I've only received bike fits. Uh, I've gotten, you know, some of the more simple ones with like a fit kit or even, um, basically someone doing what you could do on your own for me, which, um, is fairly inexpensive, but is, you know, more like more for the convenience than anything else. And then I've recently gotten a much more expensive fit that used a couple different technologies, um, like, uh, the seat, the saddle sensor, which measures the, um, the locations of the weight on the mm-hmm. seat. And then also the foot sensors that'll measure the pressure spots on your foot, uh, to try and make sure that, you know, you're, you're pressing on the right spots. So I'm sure we'll get to those. Those are I think pretty common technologies. Yeah, those are those are fun things to to use when you have access to them. And I guess I'm going to say this now, um, and we'll probably circle back to it when we come back to technology. Which is, technology is great, and it, it gives you insights that you may not have with the basic, you know, eyeballing it and following simple mathematical rules to get yourself fit. But the technology is only good as the person who's using it and their ability to interpret the data. Okay. So, so what does it look like when you do a professional fit? Um, presumably there should be some sort of body measurement that happens, um, to looking at your, your dimensions. Um, so I think things like your inseam length, perhaps your arm length, perhaps your, uh, the girth or the width of your shoulders, uh, those sorts of things. And then hopefully beyond that, um, some, some understanding of your, functional movement capacity or of your flexibility, can you touch the floor? Um, they may look at your, your foot size, foot width to understand how um, to best fit you into a shoe and how that, you know, how that inter- interacts with your, your fit on the bike. But there should be some, some idea of, well, 
what is this person's body capable of? What are the, the sort of what is the size and shape of this person's body? And then what is this body capable of um, even before they got onto a bike? Right? And we may identify places where you have pain. So hopefully there's also an interview process that goes along with this, right? And yep. the fitter's asking you, well, what are your goals on the bike? Do you have any pain? Have you had any injuries in the past? Um, what are you looking to do? Are you trying to win a national championship in a time trial? Are you a track rider? Are you a mountain biker? Um, and then thinking, you know, taking all those things into account as they formulate sort of what the next steps are, what they're looking to identify when they move on into getting you onto a bike and trying to understand how to best position you to accommodate for whatever it is, right? Like if you have no injuries, that's awesome. Uh, fitters always love that. Uh, if you do have injuries, you know, maybe you're seeing a PT, maybe the fitter's going to connect you with somebody to sort that out. Um, hope, you know, or, or maybe you're accommodating your fit in that case to work around that injury until you're fully rehabbed, um, but still be able to stay active. Yeah. So, um, the idea behind getting a professional fit is that you've tried, you know, hopefully you don't have any injuries and you fit yourself, you know, see our last episode. And in the, usually the people who go to see professional fitters are the ones who have pain and issues, even though they, they fitted themselves. So it's not, it's probably not common to have people who are pain-free. Uh, so I guess in my practice, it's, it's rare. Um, I think that's also comes with being a physical therapist, right? Like okay. the, the folks that are coming to see me, I can, I know there is a world where folks are looking to uh, squeeze that little bit of extra performance out, right? And try to optimize their fit so they can maybe go a little bit faster. And so there's, there's no injury there per se. Um, but so they're just trying to optimize performance, right? And mm -hmm. That can certainly be done beyond just looking at the basic, basic numbers in a healthy individual. Yeah. So I think pros will get fit every three, three months or so, actually. Um, if they're so like Alberto Contador never got fit, I think was his big thing of, um, this is my position. I'm going to make my body work. Uh, other riders are more inclined to fit more often and they'll fit every three months looking to try and get their head a little bit lower. Maybe their shoulders tucked in a little bit more, just trying to optimize for both, uh, muscle engagement and also for, uh, aerodynamics. Yeah. I think also economy, right? It's just like your, uh, your car, if you can get a little bit more miles per gallon, then you're yeah. better off. And, and of course, in our terms, right, it's, can you, can you get further down the road on the same amount of kilojoules? Right. So the big, um, the big coaching metric, I think is the same heart rate and the same cadence. Can your power go up mm -hmm. is, is the metric that they use, which is tough because, uh, how do you, you know, what are you going to do a 20 minute power test? Right. Um, to measure the two positions and you know what if you're not feeling good that day you obviously can't do two back-to-back -back, uh 20 minute power tests so uh you know you have to maybe you know sit at threshold for five minutes and see what your heart rate looks like and depending on your position it might skyrocket it might stay low um, yeah and uh, you know obviously those are the objective measures that we can look at but subjective matters too right if you get in this really sweet aerodynamic position but it feels miserable probably isn't where you need to be today at least um, okay. you, you need to back that up. so you know certainly look at the objective that's important and we'll, we can get into that a little bit with the technology too right? what, what does the technology tell us and what do we know um, are going to be measures that tell us perhaps this is better but don't don't forget the value of how do you feel and you know it may it may feel odd at first sometimes i think that's totally reasonable if you adjust the position you've been riding in the same position for a while and then you change something you go uh, it feels weird. And that's, that's one thing. It just feels different, but I think 
oh, this hurts, or like I can feel feel something straining already if you're only on the trainer for three minutes and you feel it. That's, again, probably not where you want to go. And you know, make sure you have that interaction with the fitter, right? Because they're, you know, they're certainly thinking objectively, but they do want to know your feedback, right? Like, hey, okay, we changed, raised your saddle by five millimeters. How does that feel? Is that, does that feel okay to you? Yeah, great. Okay, good. Let's let's look back at the objective things. Make sure everything's cool. And then you know, if you say like, no, that's that's not good, then that'll that'll give them a valuable input to you know decide what next change is to try to optimize for what you're looking for. Yeah. So I've actually had some of my friends say that um, they've actually ha- experienced like a fair bit of pain after fits, not three minutes in, maybe mm-hmm. half an hour, an hour in, and um, the fitters kind of excuses over time your body will get used to it mm-hmm. um, and this is like maybe a theoretically better position and it might not be comfortable right now but you know you should give it some time so you know the frame the time frame for that is maybe two weeks to see if this is really what you want um, you should you know theoretically you should be riding without any you know of this like i call it like acute pain mm-hmm. as opposed to the you know muscle tiredness fatigue you know, like my legs are burning because I'm on a hill mm-hmm. is different than like the acute, like we all have had lower back pain at some point on the bike. That was something that's more of a, an acute pain. And you, you might get that in your hips, your back, your knees. Um, if you have that acute pain, there's probably something funky with your fit, uh, the new fit or, you know, your current fit. But if you have the dull pain, maybe that's a good thing. That means you're using, you know, your muscle you, mass. Right. To... And I, yeah, you, you may go on a ride after this new fit and like, Oh, I didn't know I had muscles there, right? Like yeah. new muscles are sore, new muscles are working. That's you know you should put that one in the wind column. That's probably a good thing. For yeah, you, you should, and you should tell the you know tell the fitter that you know you, you, they successfully helped mm-hmm. you engage uh, more muscle mass. And so I think that's another important piece with a professional fit. You should have some feedback loop with that individual. Uh, it shouldn't just be a, a one and done sort of experience. So hopefully, there's a little bit of back and forth. Hopefully, you know you're going to follow up with them a week, two weeks down the road, um, as you get settled in, right. And make sure that everything is, is good. Uh, I think the other thing I forgot to mention, I, I'm sure we, I think we beat that horse on this one last time is they should, and I'm sure most will measure your bike at baseline. So as they go and tweak and adjust things, they'll, they'll be able to tell you, okay, this is where it needs to go. If we want, if we want to go back and revert to something that I should very precisely document that and then mm-hmm. document any of the changes that um, that are made throughout that process. Yeah, that's usually the first thing that's done once the bike's put in the trainer is they'll just measure everything right away before you get on it. Yeah, absolutely. And same thing with your shoes. You know, measure, you know, measure where your cleats were and mark it somehow. And then if it gets changed, document those changes so you know if you need to revert. So talking a little bit about what fit options are available. So usually I think of fits as three different levels, okay. um, price range wise. You know, this is a shot in the dark and depends on, you know, where you are and stuff. But um, something like an $80, $100 fit is going to be along the lines of let's, you know, measure your, you know, leg length and let's, you know, use the mathematical equations and, mm-hmm. you know, I'll wrench for you. And um, but but it's just going to be a mathematical model, sort of like what we talked about last yep. week. Then there's going to be mid-level, which could be maybe 150 to 200 in that area. And that'll use some technology and uh, it'll probably use some imaging they'll record you from the side maybe check some angles um, talk about you know what your concerns are try and make some adjustments to alleviate those pain areas Um, 
pretty in-depth, but at the same time, kind of superficial because it is only, you know, $150, $200 option. And then the highest level is like full in-depth, let's solve all your problems. Mm-hmm. And that's um, usually 300 to 400 is the standard mark, but they can go up to six, seven, 800. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just depends on the region you live in. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we live in a particularly expensive one, uh, the technology that's used. And of course the experience of the professional that's involved in yeah. that process. So there are, um, you know, we do live in a pretty big cycling area. There are a few fitters that are sort of nationally or inter- internationally acclaimed and, mm-hmm. uh, they can basically charge whatever they want in their their schedules will still be full, um, you know, because, you know, whatever the pro teams will pay for it or um, yep. these man- random masters riders who somehow have a lot of money to spend. It's not the, the beauty of being a masters rider. You're mid- middle of your career and hopefully you've established yourself so you can uh, okay. spend your, uh, <laughs> your excess income on your bike, your bike habit. I guess there's something to shame there is what you're saying. I guess that's, I'm saying that's what I'm aspiring to be at some oh, point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, uh, so anyhow, yes, I, I agree. There's, there's certainly a range and the, the high end of that range can be as, you know, up to as much as the nice pair of carbon wheels you were looking at. Yeah. So, um, in response to that sort of, uh, really expensive option, I know a couple of people who, um, they paid the, the high price, mm-hmm. you know, the fitter made one little adjustment and their knee pay, pain was gone forever. Uh, and it's sort of like, if I tried to fit myself, I never would have thought that was the thing, mm-hmm. but it took them 15 minutes and okay, it did cost a lot of money, but it was, you know, exactly the 15 minutes I needed. Yep. Um, so I've, I've had some success stories. I've also heard some people who, you know, maybe the fitters missed the mark a little bit, which, uh, that's part of the feedback loop part. So I actually, I got it one of these, um, more expensive fits cause I was having some hip issues and the new fit felt good at first, but after about two weeks, it really was not feeling like the right answer. And they gave me like a complimentary relook mm-hmm. and they made some more adjustments and it did get better. And that's uh, sort of the feedback loop that you're talking about. Um, and most of these fits will have a sort of like return policy in that um, they'll, you know, give you a complimentary, you know, another hour or two mm-hmm. to try and. Uh, make a few more changes to see if they're right. If, if it just isn't quite, you know, perfect. Yeah. And I think, you know, most of the folks that are in this upper echelon of fitting and are, are charging you a, a substantial amount want to do well by you, right? They're, they're usually not in the business of just charging you and taking your money and then, then running away. Right? That's not how they stay in business and that's not how they keep their schedules full. Uh, I, I think they do want to do well by you and they want, and they they take a, a great deal of pride in their work. So they, they will, you know, make that effort if you are, you know, having challenges or you're not getting, um, all the ways where you need to go to take that time, uh, and make sure that they get it right. And usually without, like you say, usually complimentary without charging you for another session. Yep. So talking a little bit about what the fit will look like, um, most of the time you show up with your bike, uh, they'll have a trainer set up, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the rear wheel should stay on. Um, so I, I go both ways. Um, I, sometimes I do the rear wheel on trainer. Sometimes I do the direct drive trainer for, for me, the key is that the axles are level. Okay. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, at the end of the day, basic geometry. Um, because otherwise you're well, and like your saddle's funky, right? Like, Oh, my saddle's pointing Mm -hmm. up and now I'm reaching the bars and 
gee, things don't feel right. Well, yeah. So the the axles being um, on the same plane is yep. to simulate a flat ground. flat road. Yeah, and you know if there's specific, like I think if there's specific problems, right? If you come into me as a client, and you say, "Hey, ride my bike is great, but boy, as soon as I start climbing, then my knee has trouble." Okay, in that case, I'm going to break that rule and I'm going to elevate. I'm going to look. At, I'm going to look at your fit flat first, but then. You know, you told me what the problem is, is it's when you're only when you're climbing. So then I want to elevate that front wheel and say, okay, what's changing? Like what's changing about your body position when you're climbing and what can we do to the fit when your front wheel is elevated? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, but that also allows you to ride comfortably when you're on flat ground. Yeah. And actually I had a pretty bad winter one year during collegiate and I was doing a lot of trainer rides indoors and I, I used one of the booster front wheel things Mm -hmm. and i when i got out on the road again my fit was like horribly uncomfortable and it was actually because i was used to sitting more upright and the bars were brought closer to me by the the little um block that you put Mm -hmm. under so uh, be careful a little bit there and the other thing i'm going to say about that is uh, you do have some of these riders who can put out like really crazy watts on the hills but then not on the flats and i want to say it's similar you know, like it screams fit this problem of like, well, I can't really do my threshold on flats, but on a climb I can do, you know, I can do fine. It really makes me think that um, there's some sort of fit difference the way the saddle angle is relative to gravity or something. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really interesting. And I I don't know if you have more insight into that. uh, If, if why some people can really climb up hills a lot better than on flats. Well, I think there's also uh, a drag Right? When you talk about speed, at least, there's a drag issue. Now, it shouldn't change your wattage, right? Your wattage is wattage at the end of the yeah. day, right? If you're, if you're pushing 300 watts, you're pushing 300 watts, whether it's uphill, downhill, flat, that, that's equivalent. But certainly, I think from a performance standpoint, you see, like, depending on your profile, you made your physical profile, right? You may do better climbing um, at a slow, relatively slower speed than you would do on a flat. Yeah, I mean, to me, that seems like there may be some positional thing like you're when you're riding on a flat road you do something different with your pelvis perhaps and then you're that's changing what muscles are engaging Mm -hmm. so bring your bike in set up on the trainer um they should do the interview process at this point Um, yeah yeah, before after before the trainer presumably yeah so you know what's bothering you um you know it's important to mention all the things um, because they can sort of web together. You know, yeah. if you only mention the thing that hurts the most, uh, it gives less data than if you just say everything. And yeah, don't, don't be shy about that. Um, and like, I think for me as a PT, like one thing I'm always doing, whether it's a bike fit or it's a, a patient's coming to see me, I'm, I'm always digging for their history. Like what's happened, what, what injuries have they had in the past? What's their, you know, what other sports do they do? All, all those things. The more information you can share, even if it seems like it's extraneous, uh, can sometimes be helpful to help somebody understand the, the big picture and really put together something precisely to address the issues that you're having. Yep. Um, so after the interview, you'll get on the bike. They'll do a baseline. If they're using video technology, they'll do a baseline recording mm-hmm. of your position. Um, they'll look at your hips, see if you have any hip motion, um, look at your shoulders, see if they're overextended or anything like that. They'll take measurements of the angles and see if they're in range. And then usually at that point, they'll 
set kind of goals for what they want the fit to be eventually. So they'll look at, you know, where are your paint areas? Where are the obvious visual issues? Mm -hmm. Where are the angles incorrect? And they'll all sort of say, okay, I think we want, you know, we want to bring your handlebars up because we want to, you know, we want to try and, you know, bring your chest back a little bit, or we need to change your pelvis angle. Um, at that point, that's sort of them laying out their theory on why, you know, your fit's not quite right. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the scientific process, right? And when you say, you know, oh, we're going to change your angles, what we're referring to is there are sort of normative angles. There's normative data out there of, you know, given given these characteristics, we'd expect that you pedal within these ranges of motion. You know, your trunk is at such an, such of an angle relative to the horizontal. Your pelvis is at this angle relative to the horizontal. Your hip moves through this range of motion. Your knee moves through this range of motion. It's at this angle, you know, at the bottom of your pedal stroke. All, all of these things have normative values. And so well, one thing a fitter may look at is like, okay, well, where do you sit relative to those norms? Is Are any of these joints outside of the normative values at the points that we we've defined here and then what um, does that fit with the pain pattern or the issues that you're having and if so then what's the appropriate remediation usually that is you know putting this joint within the normative value or moving at least moving it closer to the normative value mm -hmm. um, so we, that's always like a, a reference standard that a, a fitter will use to say like okay i know most folks are going to fit within this range you're currently, you know, your knee is currently out of this range. You are having some knee issues. Let's see what happens if we make some adjustments, raise your saddle, move it forward, move it back to get your knee such that it's within this expected range of motion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that we don't live by that. Like, that's not the end of it. End of it. Like, oh, okay, it's within the range of motion. We're all set. Like, you may be happy when it's within the range of motion, but then you may not, right? Like, you, you may, you're a little bit different. So you're not, you don't fit on that bell curve. And then we have to make other accommodations to make it work for you yep and um so is there anything else that basically they they'll make these adjustments they'll have you ride it for a minute or two and see you know your initial reactions on them and maybe they'll make a few more adjustments it's an iterative process you you'll yep, you know, you'll say what you know how, how do you feel about this position well you know it still feels like my back's you know pulling a little bit or um and then they'll slowly adjust to something that feels like the right, you know, hopefully it feels like the right sensation, mm -hmm. like a very, like a neutral position. doesn't feel like there's too much strain. Nothing's at the edge of its range of, range of motion. Um, and you know, that's, so I think it's, you know, I think about this like in a couple of planes of motion, right? So one's looking at you from the side and if I'm honest with bike fitting, most of the things are about looking at you from the side and getting getting you into ranges there and that's where most of the interesting things happen in the bike fit and so you, you know they're probably gonna start looking at that and seeing like okay well how's that look and they're probably also gonna look at you from the front and the back um, they may put their hands on your pelvis as you're riding to see if your pelvis like it may not show up obviously on a video that your pelvis is rocking at all but sometimes you can put your hands on somebody's pelvis and you can feel like oh wow you know when you come over the top on the right side your pelvis shifts to the left. I wonder if that's a hip restriction, for example, that's causing you to, to shift out of the way and what might we do to solve that problem? So, you know, you may dig, you may dig in that way. Uh, you may look at the video from the front and I, I talked about this, I think last time, right? Looking at the alignment of the sort of foot and ankle, knee and hip. Um, 
I like to use a you know Home Depot issue laser level to do this, mm-hmm. um, and just just you know project a line out there and have a look at that and see how how that alignment looks. Are they doing anything funny? Is their knee moving left to right quite a bit, or does it stay pretty tight to that line? How is that knee and hip aligned over the pedal? Is it you know bowed out to the side? Do they, you know, look like they're riding a horse, or are they knock knee and their knees are banging against the top tube? Um, and then we try to figure out well what's what's going on there. Is that something, is that a height issue that's causing that? Or is there something else um, that's causing that to occur? So, you know, like, so looking at both planes, right? Making sure that both movement in both planes is as expected as opposed to out of, out of the ordinary. Right. So um, this, at this point, you know, that's, that's the rest of the fit. Um, And when you're done, uh, basically, you know, you want to stay in contact, as we've said multiple mm-hmm. times now. Um, give it a couple weeks to see if the fit is right for you. Um, and I guess the other piece here sometimes, I, I know I do this, is like, okay, today, like, I know your goal as a road racer is X, right? And really, we'd love to get that handlebar, you know, another centimeter lower uh, to optimize your position. However, right now, today, your flexibility is not sufficient to be able to put you there. So we're going to work on this over time. You know, as a PT, I may prescribe a, an exercise, sort of a remediation program, if you will, to address those limitations and say, okay, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. I want you to do this for you know, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, for example. And then that's, you know, obviously talk to me in between then if you have issues, but if that's come back, I think that's going to have improved your flexibility or strength or whatever the limiting factor was. And let's put that handlebar down that extra centimeter and work out, you know, kind of optimize the position. So having sort of a, here's what we want to do today, but then also a longer term plan, perhaps, um, if your body isn't ready to get into the fit position that would be optimal to help you reach your performance goals. Right. So this is something that I think that's a little unique to the services you give is, um, you have this PT component because you're a PT. Um, and I think that some fitters won't do this as much. I know that, uh, in my experience, I was working with a PT at the time anyway. So we had sort of flexibility goals anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to get the fitter to sort of write down what they thought were the limitations in my mobility and then bringing those to the PT and setting goals with the PT. Um, you should have, uh, I think we talked about this, um, last episode, but you should have a certain amount of, let me fix my body just Mm -hmm. as much as let me fit my bike correctly. And um, part of your fit should be progressing towards a more flexible, you know, higher mobility body um, that can accommodate, you know, either a more powerful or more aerodynamic position. I mean, I have to say I absolutely agree, but I couldn't say anything else there, right? (laughs) So that's a basic fit. Um, Let's move on to maybe some of the technologies. Yeah, some of the the tools. We we... did, uh, we jumped the gun with the, um, the laser, uh, fair, um, the, the laser level is fantastic though for, for analyzing that. Um, so that's, that is one way to do it. That's the way to do it. If, uh, your fitter is using just a pure video based system, um, and that's how they're probably going to do it. Uh, and in the case of using a video based system, they're probably going to use some sort of a, a sticker or other way to mark the joints that they're trying to track. Um, as they do that. Now, 
there are other systems out there that use um, there's two varieties. There's some that are like you, you'd see in the biomechanics lab, or perhaps if you're familiar with how they develop video games, they use these uh, reflective type markers that they put on you, and then they project use some sort of a light off that that bounces off that, and then the computer system captures that reflection and then tracks the joints and in, in three-dimensional space. So mm-hmm. if you're tracking something in three-dimensional space, then you don't need a laser level to tell you if the knee is moving in and out relative to the hip and ankle. Yes, they basically simulate your body based on these data points. That's right. um, Can use that three-dimensional data rather than any sort of uh, human component. They just would would calculate it. That's right. And so either you can have the light-based ones or sometimes the sensors themselves, like accelerometers or other, just it's just track the sensors being tracked just because the location of that is known um, relative to the system. So those can be done. the other thing that can be done with with those is, you know, tracking your whole like cycle of how you're moving, right? Like it's not just looking at it from one point and human eyes tracking it, but you're like recording your whole what's happening through your whole pedal stroke. Yeah. Um, so you get a ton of data from that. The potential limitation in drawback actually of any any of these things. I'm not. I already said there's the user interpretation piece um, the accuracy of both someone visually like putting dots on you and using a video to view it or using one of these systems where the computer tracks the markers is actually the accuracy of placing the marker yeah like so if, if the marker is not placed properly then what the data you get is not as useful so as the goal the goal position is the center of like the axis of rotation that Correct. the joint is Correct. moving around uh, which I guess it seems like there are some key ways to like sort of uh, you find this bone. Yeah, you... bony landmarks. Absolutely. Yeah. I will say the hip is sometimes a challenging one because I mean, I mean any one if you're good at doing this, then you'll you get it. But like if you palpate the hip bone on your the lateral part of your hip, it's a pretty big bone. So the objective of the fitter is to get it right in the middle. So as you're pedaling that marker has the minimum amount of movement because right? yep. if the hip has a ball and socket, so it should basically just spin. Um, so it's like trying to get that precise because if it's higher or lower, it can alter the measurements you get for some of the other joints. Because mm-hmm. you use the hip, use that uh, mark to reference both for the trunk and for the knee. Yeah, and if you have any side-to-side hip motion, then that can start to um, make it yeah. move throughout yep. the pedal stroke. Yeah, uh, It can get pretty tough, I think. So uh, that's, one, that's one of the nice things about the 3D systems, though, if you can read the data correctly, right? You can understand like, oh, the hip is actually moving up and down versus is, the, or is the hip, the marker just funky. And so like one of the things I always do, like I, I put the hip marker on and then I have a look at it. Like, is that thing moving or is that thing stationary? If it's okay. moving, then I go, I go, okay, I, I screwed that up. Let me, let me readjust and make sure I have that where I need it. Hmm. Um, so how about this idea of, um, you know, say you're simulating someone's pedal stroke mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe every fourth pedal stroke, their knee dips in on one side, but for the other three, it's looking pretty good. But that fourth one, it dips again. Um, how do these simulation software, how does it deal with something like that? It's so it's, it's going to give you usually an average and like a range and then like what the average is. So it'll say like, okay, you're the, you know, the knee range is from X to Y and then the average is Z. 
right? And okay. that's, that's in the middle. Um, so like this is what an average pedal stroke is for this individual. And usually it'll also give you a trace of like compiled trace of all their pedal strokes. Okay. And you would do, you would be simulated for like a minute or two. Yeah. Usually, you know, catch, okay. capture like 90 or hundred, something like that. Yeah. And then, yeah, it looks like, um, sort of like a, a groove in the snow, right? Like it'll show you sort of like the middle of the trend should be sort of, and then there's like two rails on the outside of what the extremes of the, okay. the like, movement were. Like built in arrow bars almost. Yeah. 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 In, a, in a sense. Yeah. Um, okay. That's pretty cool. And I think that the, I've only ever used the more basic system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the advantage of the, um, the laser uh, line is you can use it as a plumb bob uh, from the side yep. to, yep. to see the knee over uh, pedal yeah, spindle. So. And then from the front, like we talked about, uh, matching up the second toe with the knee with the hip um, is all really pretty easy if you get the line in the right spot. The other thing I personally like about the laser level is it's great for feedback to the rider if you have a mirror position in front of them. Right, so now if you, you you I can project that line onto the rider, and then if we have the mirror position in front of the rider, the rider can actually see that. Because I think weird things happen, like, hey, look down at your knee, see how it's doing that funny thing. Then all sorts of things happen, right? But if I just say like, hey, just keep pedaling, just look up, you know, pick your head up and just look at that mirror. Can you see what your knee is doing there? Yeah, and that's opposed to the simulation where you know, probably the, the rider gets off and waits uh, 30 seconds for it all to process. And right. then it's going to spit it out. Yeah. And then, and then the fitter or the program says, well, look, your knee tracking's a little weird. Mm-hmm. And then you have to try and get on the bike and, you know, mentally, like you, you have to mentally decide when that's happening. Right. Um, it's, yeah. The, the laser and not that you couldn't use both these systems together. Right. Mm-hmm. But the, the laser is nice. I think for the immediate feedback, Maybe I'll say, you see, see that right there. That, yeah. That one. There's definitely a certain part of uh, the communication with the fitter. Uh, w- one thing that I had was I wasn't putting enough weight into the back of the saddle. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, part of my fit was actually having a conversation about what the saddle should feel like underneath of you. Mm-hmm. And during harder efforts, you know, you, you tend to curl to the front of the saddle and trying to keep the mental idea of distributing the weight evenly on the saddle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, that's not even uh, technology. That's just, you know, setting expectations and then trying to mentally remember them and, and also experience them enough to, you know, be able to recall them later on a, on a ride. This is going to be a total deviation from technology, but I do think uh, an important part of the fitting process, and as you're alluding to here, is actually education of the rider uh, when it comes to like sensations or what you should be feeling or how how you should be sitting on the saddle i can't tell you how many people i've seen that sit on seats in really bizarre ways Mm -hmm. it's like well that's not what they when they designed the saddle they did not design it for you to sit there so yeah no wonder it's not comfortable uh or you know or you know any other range of things that are happening and it's like well so let's let's just start with talking about how we should sit on the seat or how the seat's intended for you to sit on it and Let's see if you can sit on that way. And if you can't, then we'll, we'll adjust it. But if not, just may not, may not be the right seat for you. Um, and same thing like pedals, hamsters on the handlebars. There's a lot of, I think there's sometimes a lot of coaching, like coaching, if you will, that goes into a fit like, oh yeah, your, you know, your elbow should be like, so not all the way locked out. Like, oh yeah, that feels better. Uh, yeah. Just sometimes little things, but that little education to the rider sometimes goes a long way. 
Yeah, it seems like there's a kind of a lack of this standardized, um, you know, there, there's no uh, intro guide to cycling of like, by the way, your elbow should be bent. By the way, this is how you sit on a saddle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes you'll see riders who really have a lot of on-bike experience, but they missed, you know, that tutorial or it just wasn't intuitive to them and um, just the fitter's ability to remind them and sort of say, uh, yeah, this is sort of how most people do it. And then right. you do it that way and you're like, oh, I see why most people do it this right. way. Right. Like, uh, no wonder my seat wasn't comfortable. Yeah. Or, uh, the, the most, one of the common ones I see is um, like people who commute and they ride in the drops the whole time mm-hmm. um, because they, they think that's, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they saw um, like people in a sprint uh, at the end of a, of a pro bike race or something, but you know, they never want to use the hoods and, you know, you can just sort of say, Hey, like, look, this is where, you know, most people hold the bike and great. You know, they're like, Oh, I don't have to bend over so far. Oh, my back feels so much better now. Yeah. And, um, stopping is like a lot easier. Um, so yeah, back to technology. Well, I think that, yeah. Okay. So I think that was sort of a natural lead into the saddle pressure mapping. Yeah. So, um, I guess I can introduce this one. I, I don't know the technology, the brand. I think that it's actually um, not, there aren't very many companies that do this, but it's basically um, a a thin film uh, attached to like a piece of fabric that bungees over the saddle. So Mm -hmm. you'll have um, a flat, squishy, it is a little bit thick, maybe uh, three or four millimeters thick, and that'll sit over the saddle and then curl over the sides and... um, I think it does a decent job of not really affecting the shape of the saddle, but you'll you'll basically just sit on it and pedal, and uh, it'll aggregate data points, and I believe it's a lot of data points per second, so they'll do it throughout the whole pedal stroke, and basically with these thousands of data points that they have, they'll aggregate a pressure mapping of the seat, so they'll mm-hmm. have a an image of you know a fake seat, and they'll have you know colored dots or colored areas where the amount of pressure that you had and it's i I don't know the units exactly but it's not a percent it's like an actual it's a a pressure unit it's a force it's a unit of force i don't don't recall what it is i don't know if it's uh kilos per centimeter squared or something just change them obviously but But, um, yes so it'll give you like an actual value and it'll scale the colors relative to the maximum amount for your specific Mm -hmm. um weight and uh, basically you can see where you put weight on the saddle so my experience with this the first saddle mapping they did i had two little dime sized spots that were bright red which means all the pressure was right there and so basically the position that i came to see the fitter in i was sitting on two little spots on my sit bone and i was complaining of you know lower back pain and basically uh, my my butt and my lower back had to work too hard because the saddle wasn't supporting them enough mm-hmm. And so the saddle mapping, it allows you to uh, adjust the saddle to get maximum contact and to get feedback on how much contact there is, but it also allows the rider to get feedback from the mental feeling of being in the right position as Mm -hmm. well. So, you know, I would get into this position and I would say, okay, I think, I think this is right. And we would do the test. It'd be like a minute and the data would come in. And he, you can look at the, um, the forward and backward weight. Mm -hmm. So I think he said you want like 60% on the back of the saddle and 40% on the front, the weight distribution. And 
you know, he said, okay, you're at 55, 45. So you're pretty close. This is a good mental, you know, you should remember how this feels. This is how you should feel you mm-hmm. know, during the majority of your riding. And um, that's the main value that I noticed for the saddle mapping. I don't know if, um, have you used saddle mapping? Uh, only in, only in like the educational setting and learning how to, to use it, not practically. Um, so I, I use the more, uh, crude low tech ways to do this, right? One is looking at the pelvis and trying to understand what the pelvis is doing and put my hands on pelvis, understand that pelvis is moving or not. That okay. gives me a pretty good clue as to if you're supported or not supported. And also, um, I'll often, if I see any excess movement in the pelvis and I've ruled out other causes, I will usually palpate the rider's sit bones. And basically what I'm looking for is when they're seated on the bike, can I feel one of the sit bones if I run my hands along the side of their saddle? If I can feel that, then it's pretty clear to me that they're not being supported by the saddle. Okay. Like your sit bone should not be hanging off the side of the seat. Right. So if, my, so if the seat's hand, too narrow. If the seat's too narrow, my yeah. hand hits it. Um, seat's too wide. Usually you can still see people slide side to side because like they're trying to get around it okay. or they sit, you know, when we talk about where should somebody sit on the saddle, they sit way forward on the seat all yeah, the time. Right? It's one thing to like slide forward temporarily and try to put down more power or something, right? To be on the rivet. Um, you mm-hmm. know, where that came from, right? Yeah. Cause the, the leather seats um, had a rivet at the front. Yeah. Right? Um, so, you know, you, you see somebody like pedaling super casually on a trainer and they're like all the way up on the rivet of the saddle. Like, What's going on there? Like, yeah, uh, that for them to be saddles, casually up there. That saddle's yeah. probably way too wide for you. Um, mm-hmm. And you've... Uh, humans are very good at adapting. It's like, so, oh, yeah, that saddle's too wide for you. Uh, the, sometimes the other clue is, like, the saddle slammed all the way back. Right? And so they've, like, yeah, their saddle... Their their bike fit isn't bad, but the saddle's too wide, so they've slammed their seat all the way back. Yeah, to, in order to get to, their pelvis. They get their, pel- their hips in the right position yeah. relative to the pedals, but then they're sitting on a really narrow part of the saddle to make things work. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so yeah, it's like there's these two ways, right, to go about fitting somebody. There's the, the high tech way, and then there's the like, okay, I've, there's all these clues, right, that I think have been passed down from pre high tech era of fitting. Yeah. Right? Like, oh yeah, if you see this, then you know this is probably a good guess of what's going on there. Um, I think the other nice thing about the pressure mapping is sometimes you can pick up asymmetry that somebody's sitting like wonky in one side or the right, other. So that was the other thing that was available was a, they had a big red line that um, was basically the aggregate of the average pressure, yeah, like the center of pressure basically. Yeah. And so um, it should be horizontal and it should be slightly lower than the center, mm-hmm. which would indicate that the, you know, the center of pressure is a little bit greater on the backside and also that it's equal from side to side. Mm-hmm. And if you notice that it's diagonal at all, that means that, you know, you're leaning into one hip mm-hmm. more than the other. And, um, my understanding, well, for my personal problem, it was, um, like a lack of hip mobility mm-hmm. that caused me to put extra weight into my left hip. So I, I, I did have a diagonal line mm-hmm. and I was putting more weight into the left hip in order to open the right side up more. Yep. Um, so are there other types of asymmetry or is it usually, so, uh, so you, a lot of times at the saddle, it can be that, um, sometimes you can see it if, uh, a seat is a little bit too high, right? And so they, they see a rider starts to rock. Um, you could also imagine that you have this sort of thing if you have a, a bit of a leg length discrepancy, right? And so if one leg is shorter, you'll start to see, right? That you have to reach down mm-hmm. with that leg. Um, so you can, you can see it there as well. 
And so depending on how, like if they've been fit and it's like, oh yeah, if somebody looked at just like say the right side, that's the longer leg. Like, oh yeah, your angles look good, but then not the left side and the left side's shorter. Then you would, you can actually see this pattern because that left side's always reaching down to get to the pedal. Yeah. And you'll see the, actually see the pressure mapping really at the edge of the saddle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. Where would it, it it's normally um, sort of in the, like if you have a saddle that has a cutout, Mm-hmm. It really would be like the meat of each side. Each fin is really where the center of the pressure should be. Right, because there shouldn't be anything on the cutout. Of course, yeah. that's, that's like another... Well, also, it, it shouldn't be too wide either. Right. It should really be like centered about each fin. Yep. Um, yeah, well, maybe because the um, the pressure mapper does go over the cutouts, you yep. may have some pressure. Um, yeah, you, oh, you can certainly have pressure there, but... It should be very, very it should be very minimal. Yeah, because there's something to push back right. on the material. Yeah. yeah. So also the other thing about the pressure mapping is um, this wasn't really explained quite well to me. And here I am trying to rederive the theory uh, in the middle of a show. But um, basically, if you're in a good position, you'll have less weight on the saddle for a given power. So um, there's this idea that... Um, Newtonian physics? Well, the way the fitter described it, he said it was a bit, um, you know, there's like a bit of a paradox in it. And maybe he said it a little too quickly for me to pick it all up. But um, basically, when you're pedaling, you get lifted up by, you know, the reactive force Mm -hmm. of the pedal against your leg. And uh, when you're at, you know, threshold or super threshold, you're almost floating over the seat. And so you have reduced um, pressure. But also, depending on your position, you can get reduced pressure for the same power. Um, you know, I, I didn't really exactly understand why. I don't know if you got specific training in this. But um, one thing that the fitter was looking at was, can we get the saddle angle such that the there are no spikes in the pressure map? And like he wanted it all to be very blue or slightly green, which which indicates low, low pressure. That's, mm-hmm. that's spread out wide. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and also the net total pressure would be lower. I mean, I, I totally agree with the, you should spread it out reasonably, right? That make that makes sense to me as opposed to have just two little points. Otherwise you just have two little points to sit on, mm-hmm. like two little stools extended from the rails, which that, that design does exist out there somewhere. Um, but to, so to have less pressure for, a given power. Like I certainly agree that like, the more power you have, the less pressure you would have. That mm-hmm. that makes sense. That's the physics piece of it. Um, I have to remember why you get less pressure for the same amount of power. And it, Maybe it's easier I mean, I think, to sort of float well, in a I given think, position. You know, the other piece of it is we sometimes ignore this, but how much weight goes into your feet? Right? So if you get your pelvis and everything in the right position, and you're like you're loading. You should be loading your feet too. Um, as you're pedaling so if you just distribute the load from your saddle into your feet a little bit um, if that changes yeah then that would that would account for it too so how do you you know optimally load your feet does that involve saddle position as well uh, well I think I think saddle position in so much as pelvic rotation like if you're like if you can't if you're really posterior tilted a lot and sitting sitting way back on the bike you're not going to have a lot of load on your feet. Okay. Um, like, but if you're, if you start to tilt a little bit more like neutral to the anterior, 
I think as your as your weight starts to come forward and lower. So just imagine the difference between you know your your low road racing bike or track bike in the drops and somebody on a beach cruiser. Right? Somebody like there's there's a reason that beach cruiser seats are big and puffy. Yeah. Because your you your, your weight's on your bum. Yeah. Like there's no there's no way around it. Just the position of the bike forces that on you. And there's mm-hmm. very little weight on the hands, whereas as you start to rotate forward, uh, your your weight's going to go more forwards and come off the saddle onto the pedals and the handlebar. And then in in so doing, you can imagine there's like an optimal position of the pelvis where that pressure is minimized. It's still supported, but minimized and distributed to the other contact points. Yeah, so you know if you're with a fitter who's using this pressure mapping, um, maybe... You can ask them about the, you know, the exact theory, but part of it is um, flattening out the pressure so that it's on a wide enough area. Mm-hmm. You don't want any peaks, um, likely because the peaks will also um, be an air, be like a center of chafing or. Yes, that's um, a it's a good way to get a saddle sore. Yeah, to have like a really big spike. So that's uh that's about all I have for um, saddle mapping. I also did foot mapping. Um, foot mapping is it's the same idea it's just uh, an it's the same same technology yeah it's a it's a shoe shaped insert instead of a saddle shaped insert um, what's interesting about the foot position obviously we talked about last episode that you want the pressure to be through you know the first metatarsal the second in that area sort of um you know, on right on the line of the metatarsals, but mm-hmm. you want it to be a little bit inside. Um, and you, so the, the main thing that the pressure mapping will do is tell you if your pressure, you know, your center pressure is in that spot. Mm-hmm. And the one value that I, you know, I didn't get out of it, but noticed afterwards was when I had shoes that were too tight, I had a lot of pressure on the very inside and very outside. Mm-hmm. of the pressure mapping which basically my foot was so scrunched that it lifted up the center um but other than that the it can give you cleat positioning um indications of i think that my right foot had um not enough pressure on it so uh, the fitter recommended pushing the cleats back a little mm-hmm. bit to try and increase the pressure um so it can give a uh, cleat position uh, indications i'm not sure so so i think there's two more things here um, okay if you're going to use shims of any sort underneath your cleats uh, medial lateral shims then it could help inform you about that as far as like did you put enough in to balance out uh or even like if you were to do something in your shoe put like an insole or some sort of thing to help with foot position or um, midfoot varus valgus, any sort of wedging uh, in the shoe or at the pedal, um, it could help you understand that by looking at like, okay, I had a whole bunch of pressure on the outside of my foot and now I put these shims and now I move position my foot and now the pressure is balanced across my foot. Okay. Um, so if, you were, if you're using shimming and you want some objective way to understand like what's the proper balance of shims, should I use two shims or three shims? Uh, that could help you understand that in a very objective way because you'd want to look for the point of, you know, I guess keep adding shims until you had a nice even distribution of pressure, all, all other things being equal, right? Yep. Um, the other interesting way I've seen it applied is, you know, as you're thinking about optimizing seat height, 
it can help you understand when you've moved your seat too high um, within the range of normal or expected. Um, because you'll see, like if you track the pedal over time, you'll see at the bottom there's no more pressure or the pressure starts to decrease at the bottom of the pedal stroke, then basically your seat is too high. Yeah, so uh, the, the main reason you have a high pedal, uh, high saddle height is to really engage your glutes and your quads. You know, those, these are your mm -hmm. major movers. But if it's too high, basically you're done squeezing at like 5 o'clock. Right, you're, five, you're not putting any more 30. pressure down on the... Yeah. On the pedals. So you'd have to look at the, um, you know, because you're taking so many samples, you can look at throughout the pedal stroke. They'll give you the sinusoidal wave mm -hmm. throughout the pedal stroke, and you they'll match that up to where on the um, pedal cycle mm -hmm. you are. So you can look at when you start to, oh, well, now that I'm thinking about this, um, you can see where you start to go to zero pressure and actually... Um, they had, I, I actually produced negative pressure on my right foot, um, which is another thing that these foot Wait, were you, mapping were you can do. Are about pulling up or no? No, so that not pulling up produces negative pressure. Oh, okay. So yes, when you have the, got it. Yeah, so the, the pressure mapping that I used, I, I guess I forgot about this because we were able to alleviate it, uh, moving the cleats around. Mm -hmm. But my initial position, I didn't unweight the right foot when i uh when i was at like seven o'clock eight okay. o'clock and it would actually cause like a negative um pressure mm -hmm. so it i would have to use my other foot to push yeah, up you were losing energy yeah well, so, losing drive energy right so basically um yeah the energy wasn't going into the rear wheel and wasn't pushing mm -hmm. me forward um so looking at the sinusoidal wave you can see how symmetric they are so if you have like asymmetry issues in your hips knees ankles whatever it is and also you can look at if you're unweighting the pedal. So mm -hmm. one thing that, you know, a lot of new riders do is they don't like lift up, you know, you shouldn't really be pulling up, but you should be unweighting that foot. And, um, this can give you a very clear indication because they'll have a zero line across the screen. And you can see every time that the wave dips under it is, you know, theoretically you could aggregate that the area under the curve and, you know, at, turn it into Watts and, yep. you know, figure out how many Watts you're losing each pedal stroke. And, um, it should be, it you know, it shouldn't be zero. There can be a little bit. It's it's not realistic to say that I don't have any negative pressure, but it should be pretty uh, nominal. Yeah, it should be close to zero. Yeah. And um, it was clearly um, a good portion of the backside of the pedal stroke was um, just not engaging. Mm -hmm. So that was an indication that uh, maybe there was something biomechanically wrong. So I think that was probably the biggest feature. Now that I think about it, of the um, of the foot pressure mapping was the um, the cyclic um, waveform, and also the fact that each foot wasn't peaking at the same value. So mm -hmm. my right foot wasn't peaking the way my left foot was um, in terms of getting the the same amount of pressure into the foot. And I also have a lower power with my right foot with my right leg. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, these all sort of are matching up together and it allows the fitter to ask, you know, why are these matching up and how does this align with the riders, you know, individual pain and uh, fatigue patterns mm -hmm. and can really give a good indication and really help the fitter decide, you know, what's wrong and how can we fix it? Yeah, I think that's always the key. Very, very seldom is there one data point that's so strong that that's the answer by itself. Like, oh, 
of course, the, that one thing, that's it. Just change that. Uh, usually it's the accumulation of several smaller things that make us say, okay, let's change this because you have, you know, this little piece here, this little piece here. I saw this thing. You told me this thing. Uh, the data from your saddle pressure map said this thing. These things all sort of align and mean that your left hip is too stiff, right? Yeah. As opposed to just like, oh yeah, that saddle pressure map, that's always a stiff left hip. Uh, you know, that, that's seldom the case uh, that we grab this one data point and say, like, oh, of course, it's more, okay, yes, there's all these pieces that fit together. And then we say, aha, let's start to change this. How does that feel? Yep. Um, so yeah, if you don't have anything else on uh, foot mapping. Not, not foot mapping, no. But it is a, it's a very, I think it's a very cool tool. Yeah, um, and I think even um, the so I was asking the fitter a little bit about the software, and it seemed like there were even some unexplored areas uh, in terms of like the whole area under the curve, calculating the wattage mm -hmm. differences, and looking at the waves and sort of digesting them a bit in terms of um, how spiky are they versus you know you 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 want to maximize the area above the curve, mm -hmm. and, or below the curve above the zero, right, yeah. and. Um, you know, if you have a really sharp sinusoidal wave, the area is going to be smaller than if you have something flatter. Um, unless it's too flat, then, you know, you don't have as much power. So, uh, there, yeah, there were some unoptimized things. And, you know, I think that if someone, I bet there's more research that needs to be done. But if someone was able to research it and come up with uh, some really strong points, it could really be interesting and probably mm -hmm. provide a lot of insight in, you know, to the fitter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess there's that, and then I think that's the idea of uh, similar lines is sort of like the spin scan or looking at your, your pedal analysis, right? Like where is the force being put down throughout your pedal stroke? And, you know, I think you can, from a theoretical standpoint, you can back that out and say, okay, well, what, what muscles are being activated, right? In theory right here, what, what muscles are most likely to be activated during this phase in the pedal stroke? And maybe where, where is it weak? Where is it strong? Um, and then could we make some adjustments to your fit to try to optimize? Like you say, we want to have like the, the ideal curve, right? We want to maximize that area under the curve so that power is being distributed fairly evenly. And we always know it's going to be stronger, um, you know, from that three o'clock position is going to be your peak of power just because of the, the mechanics of it. But you know, how, how can we make sure it's not a big spike at three o'clock and then nothing else that's happening? Uh, can we, as they're just thinking about like, as we're going through your fit, can we see if we can optimize that curve and check that again as a point of feedback um, more than anything? I wouldn't say like, oh, I'm going to fit somebody just based on their pedal curve. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's just an additional point of feedback to sort of say like, yes, I'm checking the boxes of making sure that we're optimizing things for you as a rider. So this, um, this pedal curve is, and I, it seems to be like a fairly popular option, but it's, so I want to say it's like, looks like the cross section of a piece of fruit almost yeah kind of or like i've heard that i've heard like uh like a like a weird like asymmetrical peanut a little bit depending on what what program you look at like so one one i've used is is both sides looks at both sides okay and so it sort of looks like a uh, peanut because it's it's taking both together yeah, yeah. okay so it's basically um if my understanding is correct, it's it's like a clock face mm -hmm. of the pedal stroke, and then it'll give the power radially, the yeah. power depending on where you are in the pedal stroke. Correct. And so, correct. Um, 
you the it's the area inside of the circle the larger that area the more watts you have that's right yeah as, so, as you move out from the the center point that's uh, more power being put down yeah and more force so so the um you know a, a circle mm -hmm. would be equal power throughout the whole pedal stroke right which is unrealistic yeah i mean just the mechanics of your crank make mm -hmm. that very difficult right your crank moving in the circle it's very hard to put down a whole lot of power at 12 o'clock yep but also like we said with the foot analysis you don't want anything to be too peaky either because yep. then the the area inside the curve also um is smaller so right. and this makes sense from uh you know just thinking about fitting you want to you want to fit so that your legs are at optimal length at the optimal torque position which is right. three o'clock so you, you want to make sure that your glutes and your quads are the right length at three o'clock, but you also want to be able to use them at one o'clock, two o'clock, four o'clock and five o'clock as mm -hmm. well. So it's not just about that three o'clock position. That is the most important, but you also need to engage it throughout the other areas there. And then you also have to, you know, unweight this, the pedal so you don't have any sort of negative pressure on the other side. Right. And I think we've mentioned this a, a number, number of times in different episodes that our muscles uh, work on a, a curve of sorts. A right? Gaussian curve. Yeah, yeah. Right? that's least powerful at the ends of the range of motion and best in the middle. And so you, you know, at that three o'clock position, you wanna be pretty darn close to the middle of the range of motion for your, your quads, so your knee and your hip for your glutes to okay. be able to produce power. And then you know, your, your cranks aren't so crazy long that you should be running out of length as you <laughs> go down towards six o'clock. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of the idea. Like, how can we get you know the hips and the knee in a pretty good position towards the middle of their range of the motion, where they're in their sweet spot to produce power when we're coming around towards that three o'clock? Yeah, and so the reason the three o'clock is so important is because your force production is perpendicular to the crank arm right. uh, when the majority of your muscles are um, at their you know the, these these large um, the, the power big one, muscles. Yeah, yep. yeah, they're at their right position. So whereas at say four o'clock, your if you're pushing straight down at four o'clock, you're not directly perpendicular to the crank arm. So right. some of the um, some of the energy is going into straining the you know the energy goes into the bike, energy goes into the crank arm rather than um, through Driving the chain, the chain. Ring, yeah, and in, into the rear wheel. So you know if if we want to be you know break this down even more, you know the whole goal is you're using this energy you have stored in your body to produce energy into the rear wheel so that involves you know squeezing your muscles correctly at the right time having the energy go into the bike into the chain hopefully not just into the bike you want it to go into the chain and then into the you know cassette and then into the rear wheel so you see some people who are huffing and puffing and well they're producing a lot of energy but how much of that is going into the rear wheel is That's really right. the indicator of That's speed right. um, and i think you know, we talk, also talk about kilojoules a lot, right? Like you can, you can get in a room and do, you know, indirect calorimetry and say like, oh yeah, you, you heat up the room a lot, but how many watts did you produce at the, at the wheel? Yeah. And I think this is actually another topic that we should do. It's, um, it's a fairly new metric, but it's like your Q or overall efficiency. Um, I don't remember if it's Q or if they use a different, um, value, but basically you know, if you put somebody in a tent and you measure the temperature and you say, how much energy did they produce? Mm -hmm. And you also measure, you know, their rear wheel energy production and how much went into that rear wheel. And 
you know, in case uh, you couldn't guess it, pros are going to have a very high number and amateur athletes are going to be a bit lower. So, Although the, the range of that isn't extreme, right? Like there, there's a reason that we can easily use our kilojoules produced on the bike to estimate how many calories we've consumed. Right. right. So it 20, will be... 23, 25% is pretty typical value and conveniently is it 4.184 right. joules per calorie. Right. So the, the whole um, kilojoules to calorie ratio is a convenient... Um, like natural phenomenon where um, basically we use about 25% efficiency and the conversion factor is about four. So then when you multiply them together, you get about one. So for higher intensities, you should estimate about 1.1 calories per kilojoule is what I've been told. And then Mm -hmm. um, something more like endurance riding would be closer to one. So, I mean, uh, if a pro is 10% more efficient than you, that's a lot. Sure. Well, yeah. All right. That's the difference between 23 and 25%, though. That's that's a big yep. deal, right? Because you're, you know, how far do my thousand kilojoules carry me? Right. And then also, um, you know, pros are lighter. So that yeah. helps too. Yeah. Lighter and, and ca- capable of doing more kilojoules as well. Yeah. So not only can they put out more kilojoules, but they, you know, do more. Yeah. Yes. They do about. more. More of it goes to the rear wheel and they're moving less mass. Yeah. So, I mean, back to fitting, um, this is sort of the, the goal of the fitter is to um, also help you do that. If, you, if you're looking for performance-oriented stuff there, you know, at the end of the day, they might not use these exact words, but they're looking to, you know, get as much force through that rear wheel as possible. Yeah, um, absolutely. With the least energy on your part. Yeah, and that goes back to what we said about the tests with um, looking at heart rate and cadence. Um, and seeing how much power you can produce mm-hmm. it's that's an objective way to sort of get to the same end so um, heart rate isn't always 100 percent with uh, sort of total energy that you use but um, it's the best sort of the best we have unless you're going to go through the full lab right um, you know put yourself in a tent and measure you know the air temperature and all that stuff um, if you're not willing to do that part then um, heart rate is you know it's a good it's a good proxy you know obviously you have to heart rate wattage watts or watts at the end of the day right it doesn't matter if you're having a great day or you're having a terrible day a watt is a watt uh, that's yeah. not going to change but your heart rate for a given watt that can vary on so many different factors mm-hmm. and that, that's the challenge with heart rate and uh, is it it's not always the same it's not like your car you get in your car if you're in okay I drive manual transmission, so, you know, excuse me, I know not everybody's not used to, like, if I'm in third year and I'm at 3,000 RPMs, my speed, you know, it's pretty, like, you, I can pretty much predict my speed. Well, I mean, because it's, like, gear, it's a gear ratio. The gear ratio, right? Yeah. Like, I know, whereas heart rate and power are not linked like that. Right. And I think, though, this test where you, you know, you get a position, you do tempo, and you look at your heart rate. And you can either, you know, hold power constant, you can hold heart rate constant and mm-hmm. see which one of them changes. If you do that for five minutes and you have a number and then you change your position, you, you know, the fitter says, I think your saddle should be a bit higher. You move your saddle higher. Mm-hmm. You do the exact same test, you know, 10 minutes after you did the first test. It should be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Fitting, fitting should not have stressed you out sufficiently to yeah to affect alter the heart rate. The heart rate. So from that perspective, yeah, it's fine. It's it's a good 
realistic test. Um, if you're trying to do it on different days, you know, even I notice sometimes my heart rate skyrockets when it's windy, even because you have, so, you have so much more core engagement to keep your bike straight. And, um, you know, if you're doing it on a hotter day, colder day, you know, did you sleep well the night before? All these things can be so confounding that it's not realistic. It's not a good idea to do two different days to try and use your heart rate as mm -hmm. an indicator. And I know that a lot of people, myself included, well, I'll do my warm up and, you know, I'll always ride on very similar roads. So my warm up pattern is pretty similar and I'll, it'll sort of get into my head if my heart rate's a bit higher, you know, when I'm doing my standard, you know, 200 watts or whatever to mm -hmm. get out. And that's like, that's bad. You know, you, you should be mature enough to say, you know, oh, well, you know, every day is going to be different. And this isn't an indication of, you know, what my training is going to be like today. But I think it's really common to sort of say, well, my heart rate's like three beats higher than usual. Yeah, what's going on today? It's not going to be good. But, you know, how much of the ride is going to be affected more by your mindset of it not being a good day? as opposed to, you know, the change in heart rate. All right. Now that we've digressed, um, is there more fitting tech you wanted to, uh, to dive into or, or go over? Um, I, those are the ones that I've used personally. Um, and I think those are the, the big things that I've seen and or been trained on um trying to think if there's anything else that i'm i've seen out there i mean so i know i mentioned this to you uh at some other time but i do think this is just my personal opinion um so all these studies that are done when we look at and say oh yeah the the quads are active during this uh part of the pedal cycle the glutes this part the calves this part those are typically uh, EMG studies, so um, electromyography, when you're looking at the electrical signal that the muscle is producing, or uh, it's being produced, you know, cause the muscle to contract. So I, I think in some future world, um, that'd be a very interesting way to understand fitting. Uh, that is like, well, let's see how much the muscles are being activated. Um, and there's, you know, research grade ones, there's needle EMG, where they actually put a needle into the muscle. Um, usually that requires a highly trained individual to do that. Um, and it's a little uncomfortable. There, there are uh, more accessible systems that uh, use uh, surface uh, electrodes to be able to read and interpret um, the signals. So you know, I, I can imagine a world where we're putting um, these little pads on you and we're reading what's happening at the muscles and then adjusting your position uh, and trying to optimize, like we said, like we, we want, we want the glutes and the quads to be very active at three o'clock. Well, let's put an electrode on those muscles and let's see what's going on. Yeah. Um, and we always, we always norm that when we do it to, uh, the max maximum voluntary contraction. So we just ask you like, okay, go ahead and contract your quad as much as possible. We said that as a baseline. And then we would, you know, do relative to that, how much force are you putting out and under and see, see if we could raise that, you know, as much as possible and optimize that at that three o'clock point. So just a, you know, just a, like a thought of an, another technology. I mean, hopefully I know it's, it's out there and so like portable EMG things are out there in the world, like still kind of researchy grade, um, maybe like super high level, um, not certainly not cheap. Um, but I think that's something that I would love to see used in fits, uh, more, more commonly 
of course that's like a whole education piece of how do you do this thing uh, yeah but i think that's like the next i think the next technology that would be really give really great insight to a fitter and um, understanding how to optimize an individual's performance on the bike right so this gives me um another topic that i never really felt great about was the just like your pedal cycle uh you know what is the shape supposed to look like also like with an emg how you know what is considered good in terms mm-hmm. of uh norming like is a uh, 40% engagement of this muscle like good how do you decide if it's good and it seems like the most common way is to compare it to professionals mm-hmm. and i've always kind of felt like that might not be the best um and and the reason i say that is you know a lot of professional cyclists have like crazy fits and they have crazy posture mm-hmm. stuff and um, their physique is, you know, like, especially I think the sky riders have, um, they are like really, really intent on getting lean. Um, and at the risk of, you know, we all know Froome looks like a spider on the bike. They don't really care about some of this other stuff. I know Nairo Quintana, it seems like he really has a lot of anterior pelvic tilt. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like pretty obviously seen. And these riders seem to have these issues, but can still put out like massive amounts of power. And it seems like maybe they've all found their own way to be strong, mm-hmm. not necessarily following this optimal, you know, this is the theoretical, we had mathematicians and physical therapists do a, you know, regression study on whatever optimal mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like, well, I got to do another 0.2 Watts per kilo by next summer. How am I going to do it? Right. And so I wonder if their pedal cycle isn't something that should be strived for almost. And um, yeah, it's like a, a wonky individualized thing that works really well for one person, but not, you know, not for most people because I think by definition, right, professional athletes are on one end of the bell curve. Yeah. Right? And, and they're maybe not exactly what we should be exactly striving for. And we talked about this a little bit in the last episode is, you know, don't slam your stem unless you've done dedicated, you know, flexibility work. And every pro has done dedicated flexibility work because that's important to their craft. But you, you know, you likely haven't. And I wonder some of these pedal cycles, um, you know, whoever's doing the analysis is like, well, you know, we see top riders have, you know, this shape and you kind of have this shape. Um I wonder if you really should be striving to get the same shape or not. You know, one one reason that you don't have the same shape is maybe you don't have as good core engagement, which it could be an indication that you need to get your core engagement in order to match their numbers. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you could be chasing the shape that they have and it could be taking you off of, you know, the thing that makes you like a really good athlete. Mm-hmm. So I wonder the the variance in these uh, metrics for professional athletes, even metrics as simple as like your, your knee angle at the bottom of your pedal stroke could be, could vary greatly. And Mm -hmm. I I know it does because you can look at the side view of cyclists and some seem to be like almost so short in their, um, in their length. And then you see other riders that seem to really extend their leg. Mm -hmm. Um, So the value of looking at, like someone like a professional, I wonder, I, I guess some of these, you know, why did they decide on, you know, 35 degrees is the optimal angle for, 
um, you know, your knee bend at the bottom of your pedal stroke. It, you, I don't know. It's important to keep context with all this stuff and make sure that, you know, what is my real goal? And like mm-hmm. we said, your goal is to get the power out of the rear wheel. So, you know, what is it for you? What does that mean for you? And, um, yeah, I think for, for what it's worth, right. Like I, I always start with the baseline numbers for a fit. Okay. You know, given, given your flexibility, given your strength, all these things I know uh, about your body and your goals and everything, this is kind of the range I expect that you're going to be in. And I start there, but then, you know, not, not uncommon that I end up somewhere and I mean, not the whole thing, but like I'll end up with somebody that that's not their restraint. Like they don't fit in that bell curve and like, Oh, you know what? you're like super happy with the handlebar lower and there's nothing weird going on. And, you know, by the numbers, most people wouldn't do well with the handlebar to see that way, but you're super happy. It's helping you meet your goals. You're not having any problems. All your other joints look fine. Everything looks good. I can't argue with that. I'm not going to say like, no, it has to be a centimeter and a half higher because the numbers say, I'm going to say, you know what, this is working for you. I, I, you know, the numbers say you should do this, but if it's working for you, I think we should leave it. It's helping you get towards where you want to go. Let's go with changes that we made and, you know, away, away we go because yes, the numbers are for, you know, somewhere on the bell curve and you may not be on that part of the bell curve and that's fine. Yeah. And, um, of course, like a happy rider is always the fastest rider. Uh, Um, Well, okay. Not always, but it's a it's a strong contributing factor yeah. to performing well is being you know happy with and comfortable on your bike yeah except time trialists sorry <laughs> um it's a bit of a asking for an uncomfortable position i think sure sure so uh yeah if you don't have anything else uh, we can wrap it up here yeah nothing nothing else from me uh, no more no more theoretical technologies at least not today uh, maybe maybe with some other you know Part part three future technologies of bike fitting. Yeah, we can uh, like write basically write a review on a review paper on like emerging uh, emerging technologies for bike bike fitting. Yeah. Yes, and I think uh, you sort of alluded to it. Uh, this is probably one of those things of you know more research is needed. The answer at every at the end of every good scientific paper right? is like, well, more research is needed in this area. And yeah, uh, it's sort of like, well, we think this is right, but it would be great if we had ten more papers that mm-hmm. said this was right. That's right, and we had a thousand more subjects to test this on, and and so yeah. on and so forth. Um, okay, well, that's that's all good. Um, I think this is that was a nice summary, at least, of more advanced bike fitting. Um, and um i guess i don't know i don't think we mentioned this at the beginning but you know this is for um specifically you know if you're having issues or you want to optimize correct correct. most people and most um, amateurs can uh, sort of fit themselves yes and and, and do do well by the math and the the basic things and really like you know don't feel like you have to get this thousand dollar fit or whatever you know you're already spending enough on a decent bike and um enjoying your time riding it so um, unless you're having specific issues um, just enjoy your time yeah absolutely i think it's it's really only especially for me as a pt yes it's the people who are injured and you know are super excited about biking and are really into biking like that's the small subset of the population that i can really help um, so yeah it's, it's not it's not like every person that buys a new bike needs to come see me and, and get their fit 
you know, the things we talked about in the last episode will more than cover most people. Um, the things that your, your bike shop will be able to help you with. Yep. And, uh, the only other thing we have is, um, thanks for uh, sharing and, you know, please review, share with your friends. Um, we've had a record number of listens on our last episode, so it'd be cool if uh, we could keep that trend going and, uh, we really enjoy making this. So, you know, we'd like to have more people listen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as I've said before, if there's something in particular, uh, that you're interested in us dissecting and, and chatting about, shoot us, uh, shoot us over a message and, or, you know, leave, leave us a review if you like us and we're, we're happy to take on, on new things. Yep. And, uh, as we say, keep the rubber side down. Yeah. And we'll see you next time.